Hello everybody, this sermon is the fifth in our series looking at the covenants in the Bible. This is a covenant for a king, looking at God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. This week, Emily connected with a lady on the island who was really upset. She had been making grand plans for the future, and now she feared she'd made a mistake. A few months ago, she had decided to set up a small business, selling carefully sourced cosmetics. However, in the current crisis, all her stalls and parties had been cancelled. Emily tried to comfort her. She then showed the lady how to host her makeup parties online. In these tough times, the business could go on. The plans just needed changing a bit. Every single one of us have been there, haven't we? We've all made plans that then needed changing. I wonder what plans you were making before the arrival of the virus. Were you making decisions about housing, finance, family, career, retirement, or what to focus on with your valuable time? Just take a moment to think about that. The coronavirus has reminded us of the uncertainty of the world and the fragility of human life. The question I would like to ask us all then is this. How do we go about making our plans? What process do we go through? And what part does God get in it all? When we make our plans, do we get all excited and rush ahead, only to pray later, asking God to endorse and bless the decisions we have already made? Or do we seek God first, asking him to lead us into his will? I guess we all know what we should do, but how often does it play out like that? Sometimes when we're really busy, it's even harder to stop and pray. When we've been living on adrenaline, going from one thing to the next, it can seem easier just to plough on into new projects than to stop, reflect and ask God, where next? Sometimes when things have been going well for us, we forget to pray. Because we've been lulled into that sense of security that everything we do will work, that we can master our own destiny and God gets forced into the passenger seat of our lives. I have been lulled into both these areas at various times in my life. Being too busy to pray or feeling too successful to need to. And I can testify that this form of living where we stop consulting God on big decisions leads to a crash somewhere along the line. We all have to learn a lesson then of this passage in 2 Samuel 7. We should not try to run ahead of God. Put more positively, God already has the best plan possible for our lives, so we should want to seek it out. As our reading begins, David is making plans. Plans full of rush and adrenaline. Plans for the spectacular. The last few months of David's life have been a whirlwind of success. After the long drawn out conflict with Saul, David has finally been crowned king of all Israel, and the start to his reign could hardly have gone better. He has defeated all Israel's enemies, so the nation is finally at peace. He has transformed Jerusalem into a great new capital city, for which the people adore him. And after initial difficulty, the Ark of the Covenant has also arrived, bringing spiritual assurance to his reign. Recently, to mark his success, David has built himself a grand palace made out of the finest cedar, sculpted by the finest craftsmen. The one-time shepherd boy is now living in luxury. There is no doubt about it. 
God has truly been with David and blessed him on the way. Now his people, the land, and he as king can rest. But it seems David is not one for resting. Like me, David always has to have a project on the go. He cannot sit still. So on the back of his success, and with the adrenaline of all the busyness still coursing through him, energetic David ploughs on and makes another set of plans. It is time the Lord God had a permanent dwelling. Now we don't know whether this plan was born out of David's thankfulness to God, a sense of generosity in response to all that God had done for him, or whether David felt embarrassed that now he lived in a luxury palace, the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God dwelt, was still residing in a fading old tent. But either way, David decides now is the time to build a temple, a fitting residence for the Lord. And Nathan, the royal prophet who is listening in to this planning session, most certainly agrees. Nathan says to David, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Now there is something about making plans in life that's very exciting, isn't there? I wonder if any of you are the type of people that in no time at all you can be getting completely carried away. Your ideas start off small, but in no time at all they've gathered a huge amount of momentum and it's difficult to rein them back in. I can be like that. Emily often finds herself rolling her eyes at me trying to get my feet back on the ground. I can be a much better planner than doer. Well, it appears that the same thing has happened to Nathan here. He's got caught up in the moment, got lost in all the excitement and success of King David's reign. Nathan's job is to be the prophet to the king. His job is to seek God's will and speak it to David, to guide the king in his steps. But here Nathan hastily endorses David's plans without even stopping to consider what the Lord may think. Maybe Nathan welcomes David's generosity of spirit. Maybe Nathan was so new in the job he was still nervously saying yes to everything the king suggested. Either way, he shows a lack of wisdom and experience and the Lord is about to point out his mistake. That very night, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan and makes it clear that God has very different plans to those of the king. What is more, Nathan is going to have to go back to David and tell him Nathan is to be a yes man no longer. It turns out that there are three things wrong with David's plan. First of all, in verses 5 to 7, we learn that David has misunderstood the concept of God's tent, or as we know it by its proper name, the tabernacle. The tabernacle that housed the Ark of the Covenant was not a shortcut. It was not an economy measure of a previous generation, as if the Israelites had made a tent rather than a temple because it was cheaper. The tabernacle was actually God's idea. He was the one who gave the instructions for it to Moses. In fact, they take up six long chapters and more of the book of Exodus, so precise were they. God wanted a tent because tents are mobile. Every time Israel moved, they could take down the tent and put it back up again when they stopped. The tabernacle was a reassuring sign to all God's people that wherever they found themselves, God was there with them, right in the centre of their camp. By putting God within bricks and mortar, David's plan seemingly tied God down. God wanted his people to know that he was very much on the loose, going before them in all their endeavours. So the first thing wrong with David's plan is that he has misunderstood the character and purposes of God. 
But then in verses 8 to 11, we learn a second, even more important problem with David's plan. By making his ambitious proposal, David is in danger of forgetting himself. In these verses, God tells Nathan to remind David of where he came from. David started off life simply as the boy God chose. David did not merit his anointing at all. Indeed, he was the least likely choice, even in his whole family, the runt of the litter. David and his people needed to remember that this rise of shepherd boy to king was all God's doing, not David's. God had been in charge, orchestrating things throughout. In this light, David's grand plans for the temple seem to be David getting a little too fond of ploughing ahead, doing his own thing, simply assuming the Lord will continue to bless it. David is in danger of reversing the relationship between the people and God. So God tells Nathan to go and remind his king that the Lord alone reigns and David must remain his servant. So David has misunderstood the character of God. Consequently, he's also begun to trust in his own schemes rather than waiting for and relying upon the Lord's direction. But there is a third thing wrong with David's plan and this is the most important of all. David's plan is just far too small. What God has in mind is far, far greater. The plan that God is about to announce instead is so great it's going to blow David's mind. In verses 11 to 16, we discover that a big building project at this stage of Israel's life would divert the nation's attention from what God really wanted to achieve. Yes, God would eventually exchange his tent for a temple, but not now, and not through David. David had planned to build God a house, but God counters this by declaring that he intends to build David a house. In verse 16, God says to David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We can see then that there is a clever wordplay here. The Hebrew word Beth can mean both a house of brick and a house of people, or as we would more commonly call it, a household. David wanted to build God a house of brick. God reverses this by declaring that he is going to build David a household that will last forever. God's plan is to secure David's line and future. From that line would not only come David's son Solomon, who would go on to build the temple of brick, but also David's greatest son, Jesus. The one who would not just build a temple, but would be a temple. In his own body, he would be the place where God dwelt on earth. Now, of course, there is no way David could possibly have known that yet. There's no way he could have understood it. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, God is at work here doing immeasurably more than David could have asked for or imagined. But that is precisely why we need to stop and listen to God rather than just pursuing our own agendas. Often we can misunderstand God. Often we come proud and plough on in our own strength. But most often of all, we settle for plans that are much smaller than the great ones that God has in mind for us. It's worth taking note here of the full extent of what God commits himself to in this passage. The Lord has blessed David in the past and promises that he'll continue blessing him in the future. The Lord will make David's name great. He will be famous long after his death and have a permanent place in history. 
Through David's line, he will give Israel security in their land and rest from all their enemies. The Lord promises David a perpetuating royal dynasty. Not only will he be the first king of Israel whose son succeeds him, but many more sons will follow. In fact, David's line will be established forever. The Lord will be a father to all David's children, and they will be his sons. When they sin, the Lord will justly discipline them, but he will never withdraw his love from them. These promises are so serious here, they take the form of a covenant. Although the word covenant is never used in this chapter, that is clearly what David and all Israel thought was being set up. When God says in verse 15, my love will never be taken away, the term for love is the Hebrew word hesed, which is the word used for God's steadfast, loyal, covenantal love, his undeserved, gracious favour. In other words, God's promise to David here is an unbreakable promise. Yes, later kings will disobey God and suffer the consequences, but the Lord's promise for an eternal kingdom will be fulfilled. It is guaranteed. This, then, is the covenant that the Israelite people held on to for dear life through all the trial of exile. Through all the suffering at the hands of Assyria, Babylon and Rome, this was the promise that kept them going. That one day a king in David's line, the Messiah, would reign. We, of course, know that they were right to hold on, for this promise was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, who was born in the town of David, and to Joseph, a son of David. Jesus was not the type of king that people were expecting, but he was the exact king they needed. So here we learn again what we've been learning throughout this series. Once God has made a promise, he will not break it. God will never go back on his covenant. He will only fulfil it and swallow it up with something much better. God's plans are always the best plans and we can trust them completely. In a moment, I'm going to finish. But just before I do, let's just notice how David responds to God's announcement through Nathan. For it's a model to us all. I don't know how good you are at being told you cannot have what you want. I know that when I'm told that my plans will come to nothing, that I can be particularly sullen. David, too, when hearing that his plans for a temple were not to be fulfilled, could also have been knocked back and frustrated. He could have got angry. He could have tried to ignore Nathan and push on with the building regardless. But that's not how he responded at all. Instead, we see why he was such a good king, the man after God's own heart. When David receives Nathan's message, he goes straight into God's presence and he sits down. He takes the time to stop, to reflect and pray. He fights to get perspective. His wonderful prayer recorded at the end of the chapter is one of praise, humility and supplication to God. It can be summed up with these words in verses 25 and 26. Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. On hearing God's announcement through Nathan, David shelves his own plans and embraces God's purpose. He is now more concerned about God's name than his own. That is always the first step on the path to wisdom. I want to finish then by returning to how we began. 
Now that we've read this story, how are we going to allow it to affect the way that we make plans for the future? Will we seek God's guidance and God's purpose before we press ahead? Will we stop to reflect and pray amongst all the busyness and excitement? There are lots of ways that God can guide us today. God can guide us through scripture. God can guide us by his spirit through our conscience. God can help us reason and think through issues. God can raise up other Christians to speak words of advice. God can open and shut doors just at the right time. But all of this guidance starts with us consciously going to him with our plans and offering them up to him, seeking his help, seeking his purpose and asking him to guide us. For whatever we are planning at the moment, let us pray that God will lead us. Let us ask God to use our future not only to bless us, but to bless others. Let us ask God to use our future to make his name great. For we know that if that happens, everything else will work out the way it is meant to.